You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 12, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. If you wanted to design a set of policies that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions worldwide right now, where would you start? How would you figure out which sectors of the economy to target in order to have the maximum impact? Which policies would you choose? And how would you go about designing them? Sure, there are many publications that one can read to understand where greenhouse gas emissions come from and how they may be controlled. There is no shortage of policy ideas on how to address climate change. There are numerous technologies and solutions that can give us pathways to limiting warming to two degrees, and there are plenty of books that cover all of the above. But to the best of my knowledge, never before has anyone produced a step-by-step guide for designing policies to address climate change, sector by sector, with quantified estimates of how much impact each policy might have, until now. Hal Harvey, Robbie Orvis, and Jeffrey Rissman of Energy Innovation, a clean energy policy think tank based in San Francisco, have recently published a book titled Designing Climate Solutions, a Policy Guide for Low-Carbon Energy, which does just that. Using their Energy Policy Simulator, a free and open-source computer model that estimates the environmental, economic, and human health impacts of hundreds of climate and energy policies, they have identified sectors of the economy where emissions can be reduced the most. Eleven sets of policies that will have the greatest effect on emissions right now and how much impact each one can have, 10 major design criteria for effective policies, and how to approach research and development investment to produce the next generation of solutions we'll need. It's a wonderful, pithy, and highly readable guide to climate policy, and it's a privilege to welcome one of its co-authors, Robbie Orvis, to give us a tour of it in this episode. When I asked the opening question about which policies might have the most impact, did you perhaps think about electric vehicles or improving the efficiency of buildings? If you did, then you're going to be just as surprised as I was to see where those policies rank in energy innovations framework. Then, in the news segment, we'll talk about how climate communicators could do a better job of highlighting solutions rather than worst-case outcomes. We'll review a new U.S. government report on the damage that climate change could cause to the economy. We'll celebrate a big win by an alumnus of the Energy Transition Show. We'll look at a very cool demand management project in South Australia. And we'll note some astonishingly large new battery procurements in California. But first, our conversation with Robbie Orvis, recorded November 26, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Robbie, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. I've read a lot of books about energy and climate policy, but I have to say, this has to be the most thoroughly structured book on the subject I have ever come across. I mean, it has almost a geometric structure of regularity to it, exploring the major policies that can help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and then for each one, explaining when that policy should be applied and how that policy should be designed. So just 
thoroughly structured. Plus, it starts with a well-structured overview of where emissions come from and how to design and prioritize policies, which I thought was actually very nice, very handy little sort of primer on climate emissions there. It's like a how-to manual, really, for climate policies, but it's organized around sectors of the economy that produce emissions rather than around the technology solutions to address emissions, which is the usual approach. So why did you decide to take this approach? Why did you focus on economic sectors instead of solutions? What's well, really good insight, and you're right. The usual approach is to focus on technologies and technology options that can be the solution to climate. But that's not actually how you know transformation and policy happens. It's really policymakers and regulators who are the ones making decisions about specific policies that then drive technological change. And, you know, one example, a climate modeler we've spoken with once told us that his organization's model put him in the role of a climate and energy god. And they were able to say, (laughs) you will have this many electric vehicles and this will be the power composition in 2030. But that's not how things actually happen. I suppose that's better than being a czar. (laughs) Yes, definitely so but still not really rooted in how transformation happens. So the goal with this book, as you've noted, is is really to drive at the heart of transformation, which is energy and climate policy. And of course, policy interacts with technology, but at the end of the day, we really want policymakers to pass rules and regulations to accelerate decarbonization using those technologies. So your recommendations are aimed at the top 20 countries that produce emissions and the 11 major kinds of policies that can reduce emissions in those countries, which you estimate can reduce global emissions by roughly 50% below business as usual levels by 2050. It's really a pretty small handful of key recommendations, which are mostly about deploying zero carbon technologies now, instead of promoting atmospheric carbon removal, which you see as more of a focus after 2050. In fact, many of the solutions which tend to get more press these days, such as behavior change or carbon capture and sequestration, geoengineering, nuclear power, biofuels, and hydrogen all fall into that late stage development in your policy priorities after they've received decades of significant R&D. So why do you prioritize this relatively small set of solutions that can be deployed right now in the top 20 countries, especially given the enormous diversity of possible solutions and the needs of different countries? We actually have the technologies today to heavily decarbonize the economy, which I think is sometimes lost in all of the discussion about technology and climate policy. There's a lot of focus on those technologies that you mentioned, but we can get a lot of the way there, maybe between 50 and 80% of the way there, using technologies that exist today or getting to the point where they've reached mass commercialization. And so the goal with this book is really to say, look, Let's talk about the technologies that exist today that can get a lot of the job done and the policies that can push those technologies into the marketplace. Okay, so is this sort of like an 80-20 rule kind of a thing? Like you can get most of the climate impact that you need by focusing on this small handful of technologies in this small handful of countries rather than trying to come up with a solution set for everybody? Exactly. One of the main takeaways from the book in the first part is this is the way in which emissions are concentrated into you know, a relatively small set of countries. And taken on its face, climate change is so daunting. You know, It's hard for people to conceptualize how we might go about reducing emissions to safe levels. But when you look at the fact that 75% of emissions are concentrated in the top 20 countries, and that those emissions are concentrated into a few small sectors, and that the technologies to reduce those emissions and the policies to 
push those technologies into the marketplace exist, it becomes a much more tractable solution where we can focus on driving the deepest reductions early to buy us the time to develop those other late stage technologies that we'll need to fully decarbonize. Oh, interesting. So there's definitely a consciousness of the temporal element here, which, frankly, I found surprisingly missing in a lot of the (laughs) recommendations that I've seen about how to address climate change. Yeah, it's, you know, as I said, I think it's lost sometimes in the conversation that we've got a lot of the technology today. And there's an awful lot of focus on breakthrough technologies or direct air capture which certainly will be helpful in the long run, but you know, let's focus a lot of our energy and effort pushing those technologies that will reduce emissions today and in the near term, because every ton we avoid buys us that extra time in the long run. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that point of view. All right, well, I want to get into the specific policy recommendations, but first, I think it would be helpful to do a brief overview of your principles for designing each policy, which you know, I thought was kind of geeky and abstract, but also kind of cool because it could really be illuminating to go over them, especially if you can give us a short example of each one so that people really understand like, oh, that's why this design principle is important. So the first category of principles is performance standards. And in that category, the first of these is This is, quote, create long-term certainty of the standards to provide businesses with a fair planning horizon. So why is that important? And can you give us an example of how to apply this principle? Sure. And I'll just note that, you know, you're right. Some of these are, they're so seemingly obvious, and yet so often they fail to be integrated into energy and climate policy. And so this first one, create long-term certainty of standards to provide businesses with a fair planning horizon, is pretty straightforward. You know, more than anything, businesses crave a stable policy environment. We see that in the news all the time. I think a lot of the news around the tariffs lately has has rightly raised concerns from industry about uncertainty and how government policy will affect them. So we know that businesses really crave that kind of stable investment environment. And that's also true when you talk about energy and climate policy. If we want companies to make investments in research and development and to retool their manufacturing and product lines, well, they better be sure that if they're going to make those investments, there's a return on it in the end. And so just as an example, in some earlier work, we interviewed John Wall of Cummins, which is a diesel and alternative fuel engine manufacturer. And one thing that John made clear is that when Cummins knows standards it needs to meet well in advance, they can invest in developing the necessary technologies that will ultimately give them a competitive advantage once the standards come into effect. But it's not reasonable to expect businesses to make those investments if they're not sure that those standards will be in place by the time those investments come to fruition. That's a great example. I was also thinking about mats and some of the requirements that were placed, you know, more recently on coal plant emissions where it was being talked about and it was being debated, but nobody was really willing to take action until it was clear that that was going to be set and that they were going to have visibility on it, a fair planning horizon, as you put it, and that it was going to be in for the long haul and they could plan around it. Yeah, that's a great example. And and rules around mercury and air toxics have been in development for over 20 years, but they keep getting litigated to the point where companies don't feel they can make investments in the technology and equipment that would be necessary to meet those rules. Right. Okay. So the next of these principles is build in continuous improvement. That also seems sort of self-evident to me, actually. So what's an example of that and why is that important? 
Yeah, so it is self-evident, but again, it so rarely happens in energy policy. So a great example here are the Corporate Average Fuel Economy, or CAFE standards, implemented in 1978. And during the first few years that the CAFE standards came into effect, fuel economy for passenger vehicles rose from 18 to 27.5 miles per gallon. But then they froze for nearly 20 years because the policy specified a specific target mile per gallon rate, but it didn't specify any improvement. And so those standards didn't ratchet up again until under the Bush and Obama administrations when the CAFE standard was increased to raise the fuel economy of vehicles. And over those 20 years, we sent nearly a trillion dollars of money to countries that don't really like us very much that we could have avoided if we had just said, improve the fuel economy of cars by 4% per year instead of specifying a specific mile per gallon number. So it's really important to make sure that when possible, policies improve on their own and don't require new legislation or national policy, congressional approval to go back again and relitigate all of the requirements of the policy. <laughs> you know, I, I have to laugh thinking about that because I've I've actually spent quite a lot of time looking at the rate of improvement and then the lack thereof in fuel economy standards, especially if you look at it on a fleet-wide basis instead of a model year basis. And, <laughs> you know, you can just see the built-in tension there, right? You can just imagine a legislator going, oh, it is going to be so much easier if I just say 27 miles to the gallon than 4% per year. And you can see how that sausage making would <laughs> would favor the former, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, by contrast, a good example is California's Title 24 building codes, which are required to be updated every three years automatically and don't require any new legislation or regulation. And so every three years since they were first implemented under Jerry Brown's first term as governor, they have been updated and enhanced and buildings have gotten much more efficient over time. So... There are some places where it's done well, and the result is energy and climate policy that really does drive down consumption. Now, that's a great point. So therefore, you don't have to actually have terrific foresight in knowing exactly what's the right way to design a policy for decades to come. You just have to set a requirement that the policy be updated, that the standards be raised exactly. every so often. Exactly. Yeah, okay. All right. So the next performance principle is quote, focus standards on outcomes, not technologies. Now, that's actually the reverse of most of our energy incentives, which just, you know, pay for a certain technology. So why do you recommend that? Yeah, so here the focus is on paying for what we want. For example, we want low-carbon electricity instead of picking certain technologies to reward. Now, there may be instances where that is advisable, but for the most part, we really want to be paying for the outcomes we want. This can help drive competition and keep costs low if we're technology neutral but oriented towards the specific performance or outcome we want. It, it avoids perverse incentives like where certain technologies become favored over others or where we, for example, install a bunch of things but don't connect them to the grid. And so this is really geared towards technology neutrality and driving competition. So... One example in China, government subsidy programs for renewable energy installations have resulted in a boom of new capacity, but much of which is unconnected to the grid or in poor wind or solar resource areas. And that's because the Chinese government has chosen to subsidize 
technology and deployment of technology rather than subsidizing, for example, electricity generation from renewable sources. That's a great example. Another one that came to mind for me is I work quite a bit in the area of getting charging infrastructure deployed. And one of the important things there is let's not create incentives just for installing charging stations. Let's pay incentives for charging stations that get used. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, manufacturers and installers are savvy and they'll exploit those incentives if yeah. you don't put careful guardrails on them. Right. And so, right, you don't want the utility to just go and install as many charging stations as it can, which it would love to do if it's receiving a rate of return on those. Right. You want them to be useful. Exactly, exactly. All right, and so the final performance principle is, quote, prevent gaming via simplicity and avoiding loopholes. So why is that important? What is simplicity anyway? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you see some of these bills and they're like a thousand pages long. And I know that's not simplicity. But I think here it's good to point to a couple of examples that clearly highlight some of the areas in which manufacturers have kind of found those loopholes and gamed it out. So, for example, those same CAFE standards in the U.S., they apply different standards to cars and light trucks. And small modifications to the design of cars can actually move them into that light truck classification. So this actually led manufacturers to make those modifications and helped lead to a boom in SUV sales in the 1990s until the light truck fuel economy standard began increasing in 2005. So small language related to somewhat trivial attributes kind of voided a lot of the potential reduction in energy consumption from those CAFE standards. Perhaps the most famous of these, at least in recent history, is the Volkswagen emissions testing scandal, where the test procedures allowed Volkswagen to completely game the testing protocol. And so there are some ways in which those testing protocols, you know, the manufacturers know what they're going to have to do ahead of time. In Europe, they're even allowed to do things like tape the doors shut and remove elements of the vehicle. There's very set <laughs> testing procedures. That's right. There's very set testing procedures that the manufacturers know are coming ahead of time. And therefore, what you're getting is not an actual test of the vehicle on the road. You're getting a test under a specific set of conditions which can also allow the manufacturers, like in the case of Volkswagen, to develop some software that completely tricks the, the monitoring equipment into thinking it's complying when, in fact, as soon as someone takes that vehicle out and drives it on the road, all of those emissions controls turn off. So, you know, better design of policy and also of testing procedures to really avoid these loopholes is critical if the policies are actually going to deliver on the reductions that they're designed to deliver on. Yeah. Dieselgate was definitely the example that popped to mind for me as well. All right. So moving on from performance principles, we now have economic signals. And under this category, you start off with create a long-term goal and provide business certainty. So give us an example of why that's important. So this is similar to the long-term certainty that we discussed for performance standards, right. but geared more towards economic incentives and, and taxes here. So Again, businesses need certainty, and the start and stop nature of some policy can be pretty damaging and can lead to kind of less efficient outcomes. So a great example in the U.S. is the production tax credit for renewable energy. So if you look at a chart of investment in resources qualifying for those credits, you can see 
very clearly where the tax credit was set to expire because there's a huge spike in deployments because all of the manufacturers want to sneak their projects in under the deadline. And then in the following year, there's a complete lack of deployment. Well, that can't possibly be an efficient use of everyone's money. So if you really want to drive long-term change in a sector, you really have to go for that long-term certainty and get out of the start and stop nature of some of these production tax credits in the U.S., for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can look at the history of solar and wind projects in this country, and you can see that boom bust clear as day right there in the chart. All right. So the next economic signal is really a twofer. Either price in the full value of all negative externalities for each technology, or use a price-finding mechanism. And I guess carbon pricing might be a good example of this. And that is, in fact, the second biggest policy you recommend. But why do you suggest a hybrid approach to that instead of cap and trade or a straight carbon tax? So both caps and taxes are important policy instruments. And If either is strongly preferred in a region or a country looking at them, our advice is to go with whichever is heavily preferred. It's either one can kind of get the job done. However, there are limitations to each. A carbon cap does come with the certainty of an emissions cap, but doesn't come with price certainty. And so often a concern of policymakers is that a carbon cap could lead to really high prices, which is a big concern. Now, we haven't really seen that anywhere in the world. In fact, on the other end of things, we've seen very low prices in most regions with carbon caps. But nevertheless, it's an important concern that policymakers have. And the same is true for taxes. And there, you have price certainty, but you don't have quantity certainty. So prior to implementing a carbon tax, Surely there's research on you know what the expected impact of the tax is on emissions, but that's not really necessarily a given once the tax is implemented and maybe the tax underdelivers on those emissions reductions. So the benefit of a hybrid approach is that it caps the uncertainties on both. So if you have a cap and trade system, for example, you can set what's called a price floor and a price ceiling, at which point the authority administering the carbon price either sells more permits or buys more permits off the market. And what that essentially does is at a certain price level, it turns the cap from a cap into a tax. If you have a price floor of $10 per ton and under the cap system, the price falls below there, but the government starts buying permits at $10 per ton, you've effectively got a $10 per ton carbon tax. And the opposite is true of a carbon tax. If you have a carbon tax that isn't reducing emissions enough, but you have a system to increase the tax based on emissions reductions, well, you've essentially now got a carbon cap. So by combining both, and usually the way this is done is more starting with a carbon cap and then having a price ceiling and a price floor where it effectively becomes a carbon tax, you can really get the best of both and you can reduce the uncertainty around emissions reductions and costs. Interesting. You know, I'd never really thought about it that way, but is anybody proposing such a hybrid approach? Well, the California model has a price ceiling and a price floor. In fact, many of the carbon cap systems around the world have at least price ceilings and more and more moving towards also having price floors. So I think that actually in practice, many of the carbon cap systems are this type of hybrid system, but there's not a lot of discussion about the benefits of of having that ceiling and floor in place. Right. Okay. 
So the next economic principle is to eliminate unnecessary soft costs. What does that mean? Soft costs are non-capital costs that contribute to the overall costs of deploying new technologies. So think of things like permitting fees or longer timelines for certain projects, all things that can drive up costs. And to be sure, you want a system that has strong permitting. And we want to make sure that when we're citing, for example, new energy projects, that we're doing so in an environmentally responsible manner. But where possible, it's also best to streamline these to cut down on the red tape and to lower the costs of building new infrastructure. So, for example, if as a policymaker you want to deploy a lot of renewables, you could identify, say, a large area of desert that's absent of critical wildlife and pre-zone it as solar ready so the developers don't need to do environmental impact assessments. And in fact, this is exactly what's been done in Texas with the competitive renewable energy zones. In Texas, the government regulators have identified areas that are promising for solar energy development and that don't have major environmental concerns and actually have already pre-built transmission lines to some of those areas in order to cut down on the interconnection costs for new technologies. So where possible, it's best to kind of pre-zone and to cut down on soft costs that can drive up the costs of an energy transition. Okay. That makes good sense. So you also recommend rewarding production, not investment, for clean energy technologies. And again, this is sort of an echo, isn't it, of the performance principle to focus on outcomes and not technologies. And actually, this puts me in mind of Matt Golden's approach to improving the efficiency of the built environment, as we discussed in episode 16, i.e. instead of creating investment programs around installing insulation, for example, we should be paying for actual reductions in energy demand as measured by a meter that resulted from installing that insulation. So is that sort of the concept here? Yeah, exactly. It's always better to pay for the outcomes we want instead of specific technologies or investment where that's possible. That's true for buildings, as in Matt Golden's case, and he's got some interesting new ways to actually quantify those energy reductions in buildings that's quite novel and innovative. And it's also true for the deployment of new energy technology. So for example, I already alluded to it, but in China, the credit for installing technology instead of producing energy is a great example of why of why you need this policy design principle. So there's been a tremendous amount of new renewables built in China in response to this policy, but many, many plants were unconnected to the grid. And so we just had all this idle wind and solar capacity, especially wind capacity in Upper Mongolia, that was built to capitalize on the government incentive to build new units, but wasn't connected to the grid because there's no incentive to produce energy after those incentives have been reaped by the installers. So always best to remember that we should pay for the outcome we want and not necessarily the technology installation. Okay. So another economic principle that seems to pop up in nearly every one of your policy recommendations is to capture 100% of the market and go upstream or to a pinch point when possible. What does that mean? The idea here is that economic signals, typically taxes, are often much better applied upstream. So at the oil well or at the mine mouth, for example, than they are at the point of end consumption, such as on your utility bill or at the gas pump. And there's a few reasons for this. So the first is something I like to talk about, substitutability. So 
for example, as a gasoline-consuming car driver, I don't really have a lot of choices when I go to the pump and there's a tax on there. Now, of course, I can drive less. I can, over time, buy a more efficient vehicle or an alternative fuel vehicle. But in the immediate term, I don't really have a lot of choices. I don't have a lot of substitutability. But if that tax is applied, for example, to the oil refiner or at the wellhead, well, the refining companies that are selling you that fuel, they're going to try and find every way they can to maximize profit and to incorporate that tax into their business plans. And getting to the second reason for this, the tax will still flow down to the end user. The companies will internalize that tax and they'll either make changes or they'll price it in to their product. So there's a lot more options for the big upstream producers of energy to respond to the impact of a tax. It's also administratively much easier. Just looking at coal plants in the U.S., for example, there's about 500 big coal power plants in the U.S. versus hundreds of millions of utility customers. So administratively, it's much easier to tax those power plants or the mines where the coal is being produced than it is to administer a tax on hundreds of millions of utility customers. And this ties back to the first point, but you know, depending on how elastic demand is, a tax may not have much impact on consumption at the point of sale. But it may have a big impact on a business's investment outlook if they're trying to maximize profit. So again, like with paying at the pump or on your electricity bill, those are things that tend not to be very elastic. But companies producing electricity or producing oil and gas, they're much more responsive to changes in the price of their goods or taxes that they have to pay to the government. Right. Okay. That makes perfectly good sense. Kind of surprised that doesn't come up more often, actually, as a principle. Okay, so your final economic design principle is to ensure economic incentives are liquid. Why is that important? If incentives are liquid, it means they're easily used and transferable. And that allows us to maximize the value of those incentives and allows the widest array of companies to use them. So a great example of why this is important is to look again at a, at a poorly designed policy. And that's the U.S. investment tax credits for renewable energy. So those are often referred to as the ITC. And those credits rely on offsetting tax liability. And therefore, they require developers to partner with huge banks that have sufficient tax liability to be able to take advantage of those credits. The thing is, there's only a small number of those banks that are big enough to do that. And they're able to charge a hefty fee for doing so. Sometimes they'll take as much as 50% of the value of those tax credits. So the effective incentive for the developer is half what's advertised, and taxpayers are instead left directing 50% of the incentive to those banks, all because of the need to have incentives be tax-based instead of, for example, grant-based. So when you design a policy that requires partnering with those huge banks who are able to take such a huge portion of the incentive you're significantly cutting down on the effectiveness of that incentive. And so you really want these incentives to be liquid and to not require a lot of jumping through hoops to use them. That's a great explanation. And yeah, it definitely highlights where the third-party financing for solar kind of ran into difficulty, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. 
All right. So at the end of the book, you recommend a final set of policies which should guide research and development, including creating long-term commitments for research studies, using peer review to help set research priorities, using stage gating to shut down underperforming projects, concentrating R&D by type or by subject to build critical mass, making high-quality public sector facilities and expertise available to private firms, protecting intellectual property without stymieing innovation, and ensuring that the companies have access to high-level STEM talent, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this set of things because they're not really immediate priorities in your policy ranking, but can you give us a sense of what these R&D policies are trying to do in general? Yeah, and I don't want to underplay the role of research and development. You know, we way underinvest in energy R&D in the U.S., and it is something we need to keep pushing on. And it is one of the three main types of energy policy that we discuss in our book. But in general, these R&D policies are geared towards encouraging talented researchers to join and stay in the field, to maximizing the value from spending on research and development, and on getting promising technologies out of the research lab and into the marketplace where economies of scale and learning by doing can continue to drive down those costs. And it's important not to solely focus on R&D and avoid you know, taking action today, something we briefly touched on earlier, but it is important to continue and to grow our investment in R&D to bring forth those technologies that we know we will need in the long run. Okay. That definitely covers it well. And I would just, again, remind the listeners that this category of stuff that comes from R&D includes things like CCS and next generation nuclear and probably certain hydrogen economy applications and all that sort of stuff. Like all of this stuff, everyone recognizes needs significant R&D yet before it's really going to be commercially viable. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. All right. So now let's get to the meat of this and talk about the policy recommendations. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artistic 
personal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A November article in The Nation by University of Pennsylvania professor Daniel Aldana Cohen takes a perspective on climate change and the meaning of the latest IPCC framework that I wish others would try out. Instead of highlighting the worst-case outcomes of climate change, he argues, we should focus on the social, economic, political, and behavioral solutions that are available to us. As the model we discussed in episode 74 shows, a 1.5 or 2 degrees C future is, in fact, possible without heroic assumptions about unproven technologies like CCS if we can do more on the demand side, which means that every one of us has a crucial role to play in combating climate change. See the show notes for a link to Cohen's article, and if you're a mainstream writer who has the opportunity to write about climate, please take a cue from him and inform your readers about what they can do instead of just trying to scare the hell out of them. Item 2. A new report on how climate change will affect the United States was released the day after Thanksgiving in a bald-faced attempt to minimize the attention it would receive, but most of the media covered it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.